Hey, Mark. Hello. So we were watching Mr. Mom the other day, yeah. and a lot of it is spent dealing with soap operas. Right. Have you ever watched a soap opera? I actually haven't. I have seen it, like, at the gym. I have also never watched a soap opera. Based on this movie, I really want to. Yeah, I think that they seem pretty fun and ridiculous, but not terrible. And there's something impressive about churning out a new episode every day. Yeah. You can hardly fault somebody for going to crazy storylines if they have to put up with a new episode every single day. I don't know how they manage that. For decades. Yeah. I mean... At some point, you have to introduce twins because you can't cast any more characters. Like, you run out of actors. Right. It doesn't make any more sense. Right. Have you guys ever watched soap operas? Yes. I, I watched a General Hospital in high school. And I'm sure the storylines are still the same. <laughs> I think some of the actors might still be the same. Mm-hmm. Like on Sesame Street, how some of the people just stay on for the whole run. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I remember in college was on General Hospital, which I didn't watch, but Luke and Laura, uh-huh. the big Luke and Laura wedding, which was sort of like the big culmination, apparently, of lots of drama. And I was in college, and back then, people didn't have their own TV, so it was just in the common room. So hordes of people were skipping class in the common room watching it, and someone pulled the fire alarm in the dorm. And people were so upset, but there was no uh, no DVRing it or anything like that. So, But I remember watching soap operas. My grandmother used to watch them all the time. So I remember at her house watching soap operas, and my mother was not too thrilled with that. But we did. I was in high school with Luke and Laura, and we had a common room and did the same yeah, thing. Yeah. Didn't have the fire alarm, uh-huh. but we did watch the that episode. Yeah, that was like I remember getting really mad because I discovered Thirty Rock right before it ended, and like raced through the whole show so that I could watch the finale live. But I was the RA on duty that night, and like five minutes into the finale, somebody called the duty phone because they had locked themselves out of their room. And I was like. I almost told them, (laughs) you could just stay locked out for the next hour. One of the best things about being friends with R.A. Will is that because the laundry room was in a different building from where he was, he would often just come hang out with us. And if someone called, he'd say, oh, sorry, I'm in the laundry room. And then sprint as fast as he could back to the dorm building. It always worked. It worked every time. No one would question it. But it's interesting with soap operas how even in this movie, soap operas are presented as something decidedly female right Mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah like jack michael keaton in the movie gets into them when he is taking on the mr mom characteristics and that's the stereotype that's gone with them for a long time and they're sort of derided both in that way and also because of their ridiculous plot points whereas other things with ridiculous plot points sometimes don't get as made fun of right it ties to the same thing as like rom-coms and chick flicks and all that getting derided even though the plot lines of other movies are just as bad right exactly like i was reading this comic the other day where somebody was working as a journalist and he was in love with this lady and she didn't pay him any attention and then she moved to cleveland and so he decided he was also going to move to cleveland everyone just wants to get away to the cleave and so he moves to cleveland where he becomes a music reviewer and he gets involved with this band that as part of their act they have giant bells on stage and he sort of gets involved with them and then one time during One of their performances, which also involved, like, him being in a rabbit suit and them hunting him. (laughs) And during one of the performances, his arm gets chopped off by a guillotine. So then he goes crazy, and he decides that he is going to become a supervillain. Is this a supervillain origin story? It is a supervillain origin story. His name is Dr. Bong. Oh, my God. Because he turns his severed arm into a giant metal bell clapper, and he has a giant bell hat. And he slams it, the clapper, against his head. And it sends out sonic 
stuff that messes with people. Remember me. And it mostly messes with his arch enemy, one Howard T. Duck. Oh my god. Oh man, I should have seen it coming. Cleveland was the big giveaway. Yeah, I know. Oh, I forgot that took place in Cleveland because the it none of like the Cleveland. filming looks like what you'd think Cleveland looks like. Yeah. So that's actually Howard the Duck's arch nemesis is Dr. Bong. That's his arch nemesis? Yeah. What does the T stand for? The. the. It does stand yeah, for the. Howard the Duck. Howard oh. Duck. I thought he was Tiberius. No, no. Howard no. Tiberius Duck. That's just James Kirk. And, uh, and of course, my friend. Yeah. I tend to assign people nickname, uh, middle names uh, because I think it's amusing and strange. What's Mark's middle name then? Mark is Mark's middle name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hard with me because I go by my middle name. Okay. Uh, I think it's time for Heart of Podness. Hope you enjoyed that. Duck Talk. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic love stories to answer the age-old question, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Are any of them even likable? You know what? It doesn't matter if the romance is the main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, as you may have figured out, we've got some guests with us. So why don't you introduce yourselves? I'm Shelly, and I'm Mark's mom. And I'm Helene, and I'm Will's mom. Yay! This is our Monsterpiece Theater episode. <laughs> Will was so proud when he came up with that. Uh, it's kind of stolen from Sesame Street. Yeah. But Many things are stolen from Sesame Street. I'm okay with Sesame Street being the source of all of our cultural shared references. You could do worse than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lady Bert. <laughs> if you didn't see, there was a really excellent set of Oscar posters going around that had been redone to have Muppets in them. So there was Lady Bert. Kirby by your name. B. Kirk. Oh, wow. Um, what were some of the other ones? Uh, the roast with Statler and Waldorf. Yeah. What was Fozzie's? It was really good. The shape oh, of the Waka. shape of Waka. <laughs> <laughs> They're all pretty great. I also have this running gag in my history class where whenever I show a photo of William McKinley, I show a photo of Sam the Eagle next to him and with a comment that says, same person? <laughs> <laughs> William McKinley looks like Sam the Eagle. Look. I have to yeah. go check that out. They look the same. Okay. So since we have our Monsterpiece Theater episode... We tried to figure out a movie that had a romantic plotline, but was also about moms. Yeah, Mark suggested Mamma Mia. I really wanted to do Home Again, which I have not seen, but looks insane. That's the new Nancy Myers movie? Yeah, it with came out Reese last Witherspoon? Fall. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, and we tossed around some other ones. But ultimately, we landed on the 1983 Michael Keaton, Terry Garr comedy, Mr. Mom, written by John Hughes and directed by Sam Dragotti. So had either of you seen this movie before? Yes, I had. Yeah, a while ago. So you uh, saw it when it came out? Yes, yeah. when it came out in the movie theaters. I actually reference it quite a bit in Mark's life when he was growing up. <laughs> I definitely knew about the scene where he holds the baby over the hand dryer way before oh. I knew what the movie Mr. Mom is. So I had not seen it before this. Yeah, we watched it together this weekend. Right. And it was uh, like, I was surprised at how funny it was. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Like, a lot of the jokes were great. For a movie of, like... For a feature-length I Love Lucy episode. Essentially. Yeah. Um, I've just really enjoyed the amount of, like, references to other movies they were making, seemingly out of nowhere. But they were so excellent. But they worked out so well every time. My letterbox review of this movie was just best use of the Jaws theme in a movie, including Jaws. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah. I loved the Jaws vacuum cleaner. It was excellent. Aww. And they used some Chariots of Fire... 
at the the race right. at Ron's house. Right. What are some of the? There were definitely other ones there that I'm totally ones. blanking on. And even just like around, like on Halloween, they had ET showing up, which would have been just a couple of years after ET came out. Oh right, it's so weird to think about that as like a current as a reference, current reference instead of like a you know canonical reference. Yeah, but this movie was a lot of fun and. It was actually a pretty big success when it came out. It's like the ninth biggest movie of 1983. Really? Yeah. It had kind of a slow rollout. It opened in limited release in mid-July, and it didn't open wide until the end of August. But it just kept building across that whole period. It ultimately made $64 million, which for a comedy of this size is really good. Right, in 1983. Uh, Especially considering there's not a major star attached to it. Like, Keaton was just starting out his career. Terry Garr had been in a bunch of stuff, but always in supporting roles. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, both of them are really good in this. They're awesome in it. Yeah. I always love Michael Keaton. Oh, yeah. Michael Keaton is always great. They almost actually, some of the other people they talked about, they talked about John Travolta for it. Really? Yeah. Chevy Chase. They talked about Chevy Chase for it. They talked about Michael Douglas, which would have been a very different movie. Very different. Oh, yeah. The middle part where he's got the ugly beard and is super schlubby would have been much creepier with Michael Douglas. I want to see that version of the movie. (laughs) Yeah. And speaking of possibilities, Michael Keaton, to do this movie, turned down the lead role in Splash. Probably a good choice. An amazing choice. Yeah. And actually, Ron Howard turned down this movie to do Splash. Another interesting choice. Okay. Well, it was fun to see Michael Keaton be so young again. To have all the hair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. he looks I, mostly the same now, just without the hair. And I didn't realize that he—it was such an early, so early in his career. I didn't realize how early it is in all of these people's careers. Yeah, like it's written by John Hughes. It's the second movie that he wrote, and then it's from here that things really start to pick up because this is when he first partners with Lauren Schuler as a producer, and she helps get Sixteen Candles made, which then opens up a lot more of that. Hmm. She—if you don't know who Lauren Schuler is, she's this big producer. She's done a ton of stuff these days. She's in charge of the X-Men franchise at Fox. Oh. But she spent a lot of the 80s and 90s producing a bunch of stuff like these John Hughes movies. She produced Free Willy. <laughs> um, and she is now Lauren Schuler Donner. She's married to Richard Donner, the director of Superman. Mm. And what, th- do you know what John Hughes's first movie was? It's a National Lampoon movie, but I forget which one it is. Animal House, Christmas Vacation, European Vacation. I don't think it's any of those. Okay. I think those are the only three I know. And vacation. Oh, yeah. But so, like, that actually, Lauren Schuler read something that Hughes wrote in the National Lampoon magazine. And that's where she started talking to him. And he had this about ideas that he might have. And he was talking about this weird experience that he had had filling in for his wife for a while and how he was terrible at it. And the idea of turning that into a screenplay. And so for both of them, this is really one of the launching points of these careers that have a huge impact on movies in the 80s and the 90s. Right. And with Keaton there, that's... All three of them. An impact that lasts to this day in the movie Easy A. A very John Hughes movie. That's true. There are also lots of other things influenced by John Hughes. Yeah. uh, In the eight years since that movie came out. Yes, but that's the one that we have covered on this show, Will. That's true. An internal reference. We're going to do Spider-Man at some point, and we'll talk about Keaton again then. Yeah, probably. Because it's great. Okay. Yeah, so romance kind of has a weird place in this movie. It's not the main plot of the movie, but it's really closely interwoven with everything that does happen. Right. Because it's about a marriage. So it's not about the traditional romance plot line of like meeting and falling in love. And then the end goal is marriage. This is a couple that has clearly been together for a while with three kids and then a specific episode in their life. Right. And a lot of the conflict comes out of 
that relationship as well and out of the romance. Right. Even though it's not the inciting incident or necessarily the driver of the plot. But it wouldn't be a movie without romance. Like, well, heaven forbid there be romance in a marriage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think that's actually something the movie does really well is convincing you that this is an established long-term relationship that still does have that element in it. I think it does that in a very believable way. Yeah, they do still love each other. And you see that from the beginning of how they care for each other. She's there to support him when he loses his job and then how they drift apart but find their way back together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a really nice movie. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that brings us to our first point, which is... Oh, before we do that, um, I want to be comfortable for this movie. So I don't know about about you guys, but... (laughs) I came prepared, so I've got my wubby with me. <laughs> Will's com- we'll have to have a talk about that later, Will. Giving it up. Will's commitment to props in a purely audio medium just <laughs> impresses me every time. I have never lied about having a prop. If he says he has brought something, unless it's James Comey, he has it in the room. We cut that, but just know there was an episode where James Comey was our guest, and it was great. <laughs> speaking of props i do have to say that your kermit the frog voice is very good oh he's coming back we are not done having kermit on he's gonna be our third host soon enough (laughs) just as long as you remember that you are also providing the voice so if you hold the microphone in front of the stuffed animal you can't hear look i'm just comfortable under my wubby it's great i wubba 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 woo 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 there's no vacuum cleaner around. <laughs> wubba 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 and a doodly do. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Moving on. All right, Mark, take us to our first point. All right. So the first point, the movie opens with the classic Hollywood trope of a getting ready montage. This is two movies in a row. No, because we had Avatar. But we've had two movies in very close succession. Yeah. Of montages getting ready. Yeah. Phantom Thread, also a quintessential getting ready montage to I'm open the film. i Phantom Thread. No. I enjoy it. So this is, uh, I think one of the nicest touches of this one is when she wakes him up, he's not mad about it, which is very rare in real life. And I love the fact that she gets up first, even though he's the one going to the office. Right. And there's a joke about that. When he gets in the car with his Jeffrey Tambor and um, all of his other coworkers. Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. And the other guy. (laughs) Um, When he gets in the car, he tells everybody that he's got to have the record for the least amount of sleep ever. Right. And who's usually the one who gets up with kids? Right. <laughs> I, well, we know that she's been up. Yeah. You see her, like, she got his shower ready and everything and is yeah. taking care of the kids. Although, I did notice that she left the baby, the daughter, in the crib with the bottle, presumably all night. I, I thought <laughs> oh, the same thing. I was like, sense. how the baby is waking up with a bottle in her mouth? Hmm. One thing I also appreciated about the opening is him wearing his PJ pants into the shower because it was a good way of avoiding anything scandalous, but also something believable because I have walked into the shower with glasses on at least once a week. But that's also one of several absent-minded things that Michael Keaton, who plays Jack, does in that opening montage. He walks in the shower with his pants on. He squeezes the baby, baby bottle into his coffee. That was disgusting. <laughs> he, uh, he identifies a Hulk cartoon as being about robots. He, uh, when he gives the baby a bath, the baby has the slippers on. Or one of the boys, I think it was. Yes. Yeah, that's later on in the yeah. movie. This is all like in the first two oh, minutes. Okay. Yeah. But he does sl- wake up. Remember, the brother wakes the other brother up and he pulls the covers off in the slippers. He sleeps in the right. slippers. Right, so they're important to him. Yes. So... That's sort of our opening montage. We get the right. lay of this land, the understanding of the way the family works. 
we've happy got happy family couple gets along. Yeah, Terry Gara plays Carolyn. She takes care of the family, makes sure everything gets moving along well. Jack is an engineer at a car factory, and he is kind of absent-minded, but a nice guy. Yeah. Um. So then, to like set up the actual plot of the film. He goes to work. It is so hot in here. I'm taking off my wubby. <laughs> I was c- confused when you actually put it on. I was just like, this room is way too hot to commit to this bit. Um, so he gets into a car. He's carpooling with friends, but also his boss, which I found interesting. But his boss, played by Jeffrey Tambor, makes some comments about the fact that the company is doing so poorly that he's happy to take any chance to cut corners, even if it means paying less for his own gas. Right. So you get an idea very early on that the company is not doing well. He's an engineer in Detroit in the car manufacturing company in 1983. So clearly this film is centered around the decline of the American like automobile manufacturing industry. But so he gets fired from his job and somehow Carolyn knows about it before he gets home. Yeah, I'm guessing somebody called the house. Right. Because he goes, yeah, he goes out drinking with right. the other engineers who get fired and he comes home with his box and she has set up like a family photo basically in the right. front hall. The perfect tableau. Everybody's dressed in nice clothes. They're just like standing there waiting for him to come in. It's like the end of a Star Wars movie. Yeah, it's a nice shot because she like tells the kids we all have to be extra nice because daddy's upset. Or something like that. Yeah. So he loses his job. And then in a really weird turn, he like she offers to get a job, which makes sense. She's like, I mean, I went to college and have work experience, so I could probably get a job. And then he makes it a bet over who could get a job first. But he also seems which, to be... Which, frankly, could be a movie in its own right. The rest right? of the movie is just them going on interviews. Yeah, but he's actually seems like to be being lighthearted about it. Like, I thought at first that it was going to be this weird vindictive thing. But he seemed at points to be like genuinely just like, let's do this. It'll be fun. Yeah, he calls the kids in and she's actually saying, no, I don't want to bet. I don't want to do this. And at one point when he's telling the kids, she goes, Jack, this isn't healthy. And he says, it may not be healthy, but it's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think she realizes that it could go bad. And even his stakes, you know, it's 100 to 1. Right. And he makes a comment to her. It's not even like the phone has been ringing off the hook for you. So I don't think he really thinks that... This is a bet he's ever going to lose. No, he definitely doesn't. He clearly thinks that he is going to get hired first. But smash cut to him Him. handing her a $100 bill. Yeah, with his head in his hands. Yeah. So that's point one, setting up the plot of the movie. Uh, She now has a job as an advertising executive. She seems to be entering at a pretty high level. Yeah, I was surprised about that. Like, uh, so she works at a big advertising corporation that mostly works with a tuna company, and he has to stay home and take care of the kids. And she's left him a whole list of all the stuff that he needs to do, all the stuff he needs to take care of. She keeps double-checking to make sure he's got the list ready to go. Of course he says that he does. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie before, but of course he does not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... What happens next is, you know, seeing him be terrible at being a parent. I especially like his inability to navigate the carpool line at school. He's just using the Jack Butler method, is what he says. Yeah. Yeah. That whole scene is so funny with, like, the crossing guard just being like, you know, with some of our new mommies, we have to tell them, like, you have to drop off from the south, pick up from the north. And it's just so perfect. And other cars go by shouting him, drop off on the south! (laughs) It's just so perfectly condescending. What I like about it is that the crossing guard knows his name, refers to him as a new mommy. Carolyn has clearly called everybody he could encounter and warned them, like, Jack is going to be taking care of the kids. He doesn't know what he's doing. 
Because that's the same thing the first time he runs into Joan at the right. grocery store. Point she's also two. been given a heads up by Carolyn. Like, she clearly tried to put as many training wheels oh, yeah. on this situation as she possibly could. Yeah, so this brings us to point two, which is the introduction of Joan, Carolyn's friend. Very interesting character. And then Carolyn's boss, played by Martin Mull. Hey! Whose name? What's his name? Ron. Ron. Ron very, Richardson. Very early on in the film, they set up the idea that they will be tempted away from each other. So for Joan, who's Carolyn's friend, he's grocery shopping and making a mess of it. Like an unbelievable mess where everything he touches crumbles onto the, the ground. Irv, clean up on aisle. <laughs> yeah. And he actually loses his own kids and has a He loses kid more than one of them. Yeah, the real question is how did that kid get into his cart? Because it's not like he went to another cart. He's in the same cart. There's just all of a sudden a new child in it. He discovers this when he's in the checkout line. And so he runs just carrying the kid in front of him. And he drops the kid off in the cart where he finds his own kid, picks up the kid, and says, here, I'll trade you your kid for mine, and walks away. And we hold on the woman whose cart it is, and she says, wait, I don't have a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Whose kid is that? That's a real plot hole in this movie. That's the spinoff. The (laughs) spinoff. Home Alone 3 in the grocery store. There is a Home Alone 3. Four? Yep, also. How many did they make? Four. I think I've only seen the first two. John Hughes was involved in three of them. Are the others any good? The first two are great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have not seen the others. Have you? No. So he runs into Joan in the grocery store, and she's been warned that he's going to be hopeless at taking care of kids. So she helps him buy the stuff that he needs, helps him navigate the store. Right. Is giving him advice. Yeah, but the whole time is clearly flirting with him. Yes. And the la- and he's not catching it. No, not at all. But she is, I'm guessing she's divorced based off of what she says next. Yeah, because she's with, I think she's with Annette. Yeah. Right. their other friends. So as he drives away, Annette goes, he's, he's married. married. And Joe's response is just, so were we once. <laughs> Joan knows what she wants. <laughs> I really like Joan. She was really funny. a fun character. Yeah. Which is interesting because he's unemployed. So What's the allure there? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's the pure sexual attraction of Michael Keaton. And even as he falls apart right. later on, she's still after him. Yeah. yeah. It's because she knows he's going to be Batman. Oh, uh, that's it. Maybe she just really hates Carolyn, too. Like Also possible. We never actually see them interact. She just says that she's Carolyn's friend. But... It really doesn't make sense because even when he's like gained weight and wearing a shirt for 14 days straight, she's still in. Well, she's supporting him in his quest to break the Guinness World Record for most consecutive days wearing a shirt. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it feels like. It's very natural. It was there. I thought it was very obvious on the screen. You notice all the scenes where the Guinness Book of World Records is lying around. You see him ticking off days on the calendar during that montage. It's clearly what he's doing. Oh, yeah. Especially in the scene towards the end of the movie where the guy from Guinness comes by, but by that point, Carolyn has come home, so he throws the shirt out the window at the Guinness guy. It's a weird sequence, but I got a kick out of it. Someday Will's going to write a movie. (laughs) This is what it's going to be about. This is what it's going to be about. A guy trying to wear the same shirt for the longest amount of time without his wife knowing. Yeah, it's going to be Mumblecore. They would make it. Um, So, But that's Joan, and then at the same time, we see evidence that Carolyn's boss is not just impressed by her. Yeah, so Carolyn's boss is played by Martin Mull. His name is Ron Richardson. We first hear about him off screen. Right. When Carolyn is being walked to this, like, boardroom meeting. Again, she's coming in at a very high level. Yeah. Considering she has not worked in, probably, 10 years? Yeah. And 
the big thing that we first get a signal that something is a little bit off is that Carolyn is casually referring to him as Ron. And the woman who's showing her around says, oh, no, everyone calls him Mr. Richardson. And Carolyn says, oh, well, he told me to call him Ron at my interview. So that's something fishy. Right. Did you say at lunch? Yes. So the interview was at lunch. Right. Also, the mean person leading her there is British. So she is another mean British secretary. Well, yeah, it's laying the groundwork for the Devil Wears Prada. Right. Because apparently young English women come to the U.S. to be assistants to mean, high-powered executives. And that's it. That's the basic premise of Mary Poppins. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. Mary Poppins Returns, coming December 2018. Woo! All right, Will. What's point number three? Point number three. So Keaton has been working at home. He's been taking care of the kids. He's been learning some things along the way. And as he goes along, he starts to let himself go a little bit. He grows a beard. He starts wearing the same shirt a Mm -hmm. lot. Uh, one thing that I noticed about it all was he stopped saying goodbye to Carolyn at the door. Mm. So we see a shot when we're getting the montage introducing us to this sequence. Earlier in the movie, when he was going to work, she always kissed him goodbye in the morning. When she started going to work, he always kissed her goodbye in the morning. When we're seeing him now with the beard a little bit fatter, we also see him look out the window and watch her leave. So we're seeing that along with him settling into this version of himself, he is also getting more removed from Carolyn. And the house is falling apart. The house is (laughs) falling apart. (laughs) He brings the TV around with him everywhere while failing to do chores. Well, I love his, my favorite chore is when he's ironing. (laughs) Yes, I was noticing that too. And one of the boys brings his grilled cheese sandwich that is cold. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he irons the grilled cheese sandwich to warm it up. So this would probably work. But disgusting, because now you got grease all over your iron and your ironing board. That's a good call. And then oh, on the clothes. Yeah. yeah, it's gross. That's a nice reference to the I Love Lucy episode also, that this movie definitely owes something to. Oh, for sure. The classic I Love Lucy episode where the men and the women decide to switch roles. This is the Lucy in a chocolate factory shoving the chocolates oh, in her mouth. So everyone's seen that scene, but in the same episode, the men are at home trying to take care of the house, and there's a great sequence where Ricky is supposed to be doing the ironing, and he irons Lucy's stockings, (laughs) (laughs) and so they just turn into like a stiff silhouette of a leg. Yeah. (laughs) That episode is incredible. I used to show that to my psychology students when we talked about gender roles. It's a really good one. Yeah. Oh, we totally forgot when Ron shows up at the house and he is in PJs, go, changes and goes outside and brings a chainsaw into the house just to <laughs> scare also, him he off. He changes into like overalls and a baseball hat. Yeah. He's just trying to look really manly. He just shows up with the chainsaw turned on. Yeah. Like someone would just casually bring a working, running chainsaw into your house. And I read somewhere that that was a last minute thing. They were on set and he just turned to one of the prop guys and said, hey, can you get me a chainsaw? And then the guy said, hey, do you want these goggles too? And that was just a little impromptu thing that they did for that scene. That's amazing. One of my favorite lines is in that scene where he says, you want a beer? He goes, it's nine in the morning, scotch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then he turns around and he says he doesn't drink with business or something and turns around later on the plane and there he is busy drinking. Yes. Yeah, that's a good catch. I also liked that he's trying to assert his masculine dominance, but at the same time, he's also trying to present himself as the super cultured guy he's like i sculpt i paint i do the arts <laughs> it's just everything and then when he's pressed on any of those things it's clear that he knows nothing about all oh of them. for sure yeah you could 220 221 whatever <laughs> it takes <laughs> i no, also this movie's really funny it's really funny i do want to shout out his first day taking care of the house which takes place for us 
sort of in the midst of point two. Right. So he's hanging out at home. He's already failed to deal with the carpool line. Meanwhile, people just start coming to the house to take care of issues. Carolyn had called in a TV repair woman, called in an exterminator, somebody to fix the pilot light on the hot water heater. Meanwhile, he had shoved a horrifying amount of clothes into the washer. So that's shaking as it goes. He also poured all of the different laundry... stuff together not just laundry stuff there was clearly some like random household cleaner that was just in the same place mixed, mixed a bunch in of cleaners too. into the same thing it was like a paste of different <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he poured that in so the washing machine is like shaking ridiculously trying to move itself forward, away from the wall yeah. meanwhile all these repair folks are working around one of the kids is upstairs allegedly making himself lunch he's making chili for himself <laughs> yeah he trusts like a nine-year-old to go make himself lunch I was just like, that's a lot of faith to put in a child. On the stove at that. Yeah. Yeah. And this is also when he starts using the vacuum cleaner. Jaws, as they call it. But he didn't know where the vacuum cleaner was. Correct. Yeah. He has to ask the kids a lot of questions. Uh But this is just this masterful scene where it spends a while introducing each one of these elements. And then once they start to trigger, it's like this domino effect where each one is blowing up one after the other. Right. Escalating the scene culminating in the vacuum cleaner known as Jaws, basically just because it is incredibly powerful and impossible to stop, is just roaming around the house. It sucked up an entire curtain from a window, and then it gets a hold of one of the kid's blankets, which he refers to as his wubby. Right. And they have to fight with the with Jaws to get the wubby back. After he's been chased by the vacuum cleaner, like the kid around the house. While the Jaws theme plays for the entire thing. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant. Doesn't it, he get a sword or something to fight off the, the vacuum cleaner, or is that later on? He the popcorn maker at some point with the sword. I yeah. Remember. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's right, and mm-hmm. the top of the um pot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This yeah. movie is amazing. This movie is so great. Oh, man. Will also, while watching this, when the TV repair woman showed up, he just goes, did they invent time travel so Amy Poehler could go back and play this role? She looks and sounds just like Amy Poehler playing, like, a crazy character. Right. Like, Arrested Development Amy Poehler. Yeah. It's freaky. I just like that it was a small TV, and yet the TV repair person comes to their house. Multiple times. Yes, rather than carrying the TV to the repair shop to get it fixed. But the TV has to be small, because otherwise, how is he going to bring it into every room to watch his soaps? Well, right. So as he goes into schlub zone, in our third point, he gets really into watching the soap operas. He carries it around as he does all of the household chores. In the ironing scene where he wasn't actually ironing, he was just leaving the iron on the ironing board. That's because he was sitting around watching this soap opera. And in the midst of this, for example, we see Joan calling him on the phone to talk about the plot of the soap operas. Was it also during the um, schlubby time with the um, poker game? Yes, which is my favorite idea in this movie. (laughs) Coupon poker. (laughs) Yeah, he has all of the moms, all the stay-at-home moms come over. And we've been told already that they used to play bridge. But now they all come over. They're smoking, drinking beer and playing poker for food coupons. I thought that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. It was hysterical. And meanwhile, all the kids are in the living room watching TV. Yeah. Um, I noticed that while the soaps are on, the kids are home. I thought soap operas were like mid-afternoon during the week. So if these are on, shouldn't the kids be at school? Depends on how old the kids are. Well, and they sort of went to like four o'clock, I think. Uh-huh. So they yeah. the after school. Okay. Time. Just because I always associate them with like staying home sick and finding them on TV. 
And being frustrated that they were on. Yeah. you didn't watch them. No, because I was <laughs> not into the young and the restless <laughs> when I was young and restless. <laughs> Nailed it. Do more. <laughs> I'm done. That's it. He's not a trained seal, Will. He wasn't into As the World Turns when his stomach was turning because he was sick. Oh, there you go. There you go. All right, we're done. Goodbye. He wasn't into General <laughs> Hospital when he shouldn't have gone to the hospital because he was faking being sick. I only did that sometimes. <laughs> did you? What? You? Oh, you knew. Sometimes when I was just bored at school, I'd go to the nurse and be like, my stomach hurts. And that's all you had to say. And they sent you home. And I was just like, well, bye. Oh, and I used to give you days off, too. Your mental yeah. health days. Yeah. One day a year, I could just skip and do whatever I wanted. Sorry, Will. <laughs> <laughs> now it's my job to judge children who do that. <laughs> so they're playing poker for coupons. And in the midst of all this, Joan is continuing to flirt. Oh, hardcore. Yeah. In this what scene, do you think of these? Right. She, sh- <laughs> she shows him her hand so she can put an arm around him and like really lean in. But in the middle of the poker scene, Carolyn comes home and is clearly frustrated that the house is a mess. These women are eating pizza, drinking beer, smoking, and making the kitchen gross while the kids are unsupervised. And she actually sees this Joan move through the window. So right. she's aware of that too. So this is like, this is the beginning of the their major fight. Yeah, the two of them kind of have it out in the midst of this where he's annoyed that she's frustrated with all the mess and she's saying like, look, yeah, it's a lot of work. It's not fun, but it's got to be done. And Jack asks why she didn't complain if she hated it so much. And she says she didn't hate it. She says it could be frustrating, but she took pride in it, which I think is a nice nuance that they're introducing there. Right. And so he gets really frustrated. This is probably the, besides the end where everything crumbles, but this, in the most believable low point of their marriage where he takes the blankets and goes and sleeps on the couch because he's mad at her for being mad that the house is disgusting. The house is horrifying. She is perfectly well within her right to be furious at him for how bad their house looks. I just love when he bathes the kid while the kid is wearing slippers and his explanation is, I didn't want his feet to get wet. (laughs) (laughs) The house looks like the beginning of an episode of Queer Eye. Or at least the beginning of Back to the Future. That too. Oh, yeah. So um, that's basically like... So the that's transition... That's the low point, yeah. yeah. Our, the transition point for our third point to our fourth point is incredible. Oh, yes. So Keaton is sleeping on the couch, and the next day he's just kind of like wandering around the house morosely, and he's watching his soaps. And so, this is when we see him like hanging around, and it's the next day, and Joan calls up to apologize. Then she finds out on the phone that Jack and Carolyn haven't been talking. So she rushes over. And by rushes over, I mean immediately knocks on the door. Su- before he hangs up the phone. And at that point, he starts asking her about all of the stuff that's been going wrong with him. Like asking about this flannel shirt that he's been wearing for two weeks. And she goes, let me tell you about flannel. It gets me hot. <laughs> and she like pulls off her coat to reveal she's wearing lingerie. They start making out. And then Carolyn walks in as they make out. And that's when the guns come out. <laughs> this is the moment where it becomes, cl- like, very obvious that he's dreaming. It's a dream sequence, yeah. Right. So Carolyn pulls a gun out because she sees them kiss. Uh, and Joan's response is, he's too much man to be left alone. Because clearly Jack has a pretty big ego. It's a pretty incredible sequence. It leads to death and destruction. And the best part about the death is when he, he gets shot. He lies on the ground, and there's a taped outline of his body that he doesn't quite fall into, so he just, like, scooches over so yeah. that his arms are in the right position, which is 
hysterical. I also like the first thing that happens after he gets shot is he drinks a beer. Like, he downs a full beer. Well, he kind of, like, falls, like, he sits on right. a chair and then sits on another chair and starts drinking right. a beer. Yeah. Flopping around yeah. in different locations while bleeding out with no blood visible. It's also so well done in that you really do when it's starting, think that this is the next scene of the movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it clearly turns into this crazy soap opera thing. And then, uh, he, and then of course, is that a 22? 22, 23, whatever, whatever it takes. works. Yeah. <laughs> so then he wakes up and he looks at the TV and it's the end of this, like, thing what that's happening, what he's seeing of himself on the ground. And then it cuts to the title card for The Young and the Restless. Yeah. And so this kicks him into high gear where... He starts to get his life back together. And this is our fourth point. Right. So this brings us to number four. He shaves the gross beard. Oh, it's so awful. Well, immediately, right after that, Joan comes over and Jack freaks out and refuses to let her in. Oh, I forgot about that part. Um, yeah, so he shaves the beard. He holds an exercise class for the other stay-at-home moms <laughs> yeah, in the living room. Yeah, instead of poker, and now they're like doing gymnastics in the living room. Some jazzercise. Jane Fonda. Yeah. He's cleaning windows. He's painting the fence. He's doing like an incredible amount of uh, a work around the house. It's amazing. He's trying to turn it around. He is. Above and beyond. What is the music playing during that? It's rocky. You're right. Yeah, it's rocky. It's a rocky training montage. Yeah. I mean, it's almost... Well, because this movie had several rocky references earlier. Mm -hmm. It started off with him giving a speech to people at the plant about how it was like rocky and they were going to pull together even though it looked tough. And they start asking him which Rocky movie he watched, and it's clear he doesn't know. Yeah. And then Rocky also loses. Right. That's what I was thinking. He's yeah. Like, I was watching Rocky, like, we're going to pull together and win. But Rocky doesn't win, <laughs> which is part of the joke. Right. Because mm -hmm. the plant is failing. Right. Um, I'm not trying to suggest John Hughes doesn't get his cultural references. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just like that the movie then, sh like, goes into this thing where... It's almost like, even if you're a man, if you just put effort into cleaning a house, you can get it done. Like, all it takes is caring. Right. And in the midst of this, it's not just work around the house. Like, he's also now doing car line duty and, like, telling people how to go through the car line. He is back to kissing Carolyn goodbye, I noticed. Mm. He's uh, embracing his role now. He's Mr. Bob. Yeah. yeah. He is. Yeah. And... One of the peaks of this is that he makes this really nice, fancy, romantic dinner in the dining room. He sets out all this stuff. He puts out candles. And he waits for Carolyn to come home. But she doesn't come home until really late because they're busy on their tuna contract. Right. Trying to come up with the big ad campaign that's going to bring the tuna business back to this company. He leaves a note that's saying, food's in the oven, chef's in bed. Uh, she finds it. And she goes to sleep on the couch. And he comes down and finds her. It's because she's still working. Right. Like, they show her with her stuff. And she falls asleep working even at this hour. So he finds her. And I think one of the nice touches is he's not mad. Like, as soon as I saw that he was waiting around for her, I thought it would just be another big fight where it's like, even with all this effort, you still are ignoring me. But he just comes down at his understanding and is like... Covers her with a blanket, right? Right. So, and then, so, like, that's when the fight actually is kind of over. That's when it's like, they're actually back together on the same track. He understands that he has to make sacrifices for her work, too. Yeah, it's really nice. And does that is that what leads to the the work function? Oh, you know what? That happened in the midst of all this. Oh, it did. Yeah. Because that's probably the biggest sacrifice for him. Yeah. In the middle of all this, they go to the company picnic for Carolyn's company, where it's at Ron's house, which is this big, elaborate place. When they're coming up, I think this is actually pretty early in the movie, 
when they're coming up, Jack is trying to say like, oh, this place doesn't look that nice. Like, I bet he rents it. And she's like, oh, no, it's uh, it's been in his family since the Duke Richardson or yeah. something had it. And he goes, oh, hand me down. <laughs> <laughs> he clearly does not want to be here. And she points out. I had to go to all of those work functions for you. You could suffer through this for 15 minutes. So he goes to, he agrees to 15 minutes. And if they're not out by then, then they'll use their classic. Uh, Aunt Emily. Aunt Emily excuse, which is that Aunt Emily is sick and we got to go take care of her. So, and but she tries. She does. Well, they both originally do it. It's, they say different things. She says she's sick. He says she's dying. <laughs> but then he's being goaded into participating in this elaborate relay race as part of it that apparently Ron always wins because everyone throws it since he's the boss. And so it look Jack is about to win because well, remember all the other employees try and they're keep sabotaging him. Yeah, him. They, try yeah. they like sabotage grab his ankles him. and yes. p- shove him to the ground. And Carolyn looks nervous that he's gonna win. And that that's what convinces him he finally sac- like makes another sacrifice where he throws himself on the ground out of the blue to let Ron win. And this relay race, they're wearing flippers. That was Before. such a great so it's not idea. It's just a normal race. It's ridiculous. The race, I actually thought it was really well done. It looks really fun. It looked fun. It starts with the flipper foot race, and then they have to do a trampoline hurdles and crawl through a children's playset. Yeah, I'm into it. Yeah. It's like a good time. But anyway, so back to where we are in the timeline of the movie. They're kind of back together. At this point, though, Carolyn is really rising through the ranks at work. They really like her at this tuna company. Because of her experience as a housewife, she knows more about buying all this stuff. And she's saying the reason that people aren't buying your tuna isn't because you don't have a flashy ad campaign. It's because it's more expensive and people don't want to buy it. So she tries to convince them that during the current period of uh, economic turmoil that they do this ad campaign about how they're going to temporarily lower their prices because they're all in this together. Once they know that they are, they're all stars and they see that. And so that way they can get more people to buy their tuna and build lots of good PR. Right. Because they're not just selling tuna. They're selling America. Right. That's the line that he says when he hears that ad. And that was a good idea, actually. It's a great idea. Yeah. 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 But because of this, they have to fly her out to L.A. last minute to direct this commercial, essentially. I'm not sure why it's being shot in L.A. Me neither. Because clearly there's got to be some kind of local film business in detroit right yeah because they're just standing in front of a gray background it's one person in front of a gray background why did they have to pay to go out to la this is why this company is in trouble not because of their tuna sales because they don't know how to spend their money effectively that actually makes sense but so she has to leave on halloween which everyone like mid halloween night right they're about to go out trick-or-treating everyone's really upset about but she flies off except for joan and annette Oh, yeah, Joan and Annette are very excited. Annette's dressed as AT. It's great. (laughs) This is probably the most ridiculous scene in the movie, what happens next. Um, So they go out as a group, all of the moms, and then there's... Oh, okay, that's right. Because that happens right after she leaves for Halloween, right, Will? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they go out, and they're, like, hanging out, getting some drinks together, being friends, and then... He's trying to take a separate car home. He's like, oh, I'll call a cab. You guys can head home. But then they basically manhandle him into the backseat of the car. And they're like, oh, we'll drive you home. But they end up just not end up. But this is clearly a premeditated plan. They take him to a male stripper show. Yeah. Which he was surprisingly game for. 
which I found, I was just like... I think he was having fun. Yeah, he was clearly having a good time, too. He was uncomfortable, but he was really, like, he wasn't mad at them for doing this at all. I, I just, like when he gets back, they take him back to the house, and he pulls a card out of his jacket, and he's like, here, you guys can probably use this more than I do, and it's the phone number for one of the dancers. Because they point out that a lot of the dancers are making eyes at him. Yeah. Um, but I think the best part is when he gets back, Annette is watching his kids, and he's like, you knew, didn't you? Well, you could tell by the smile on her face. Yeah, she was very pleased with this. Meanwhile, while this is all going on, Carolyn is in L.A. for the shoot. And Ron asks Carolyn to dinner for after the shoot, and she says no. Ron has been pretty aggressively coming on to Carolyn for the entire movie. Uh, and so that night, Carolyn is living her best life. Oh, my God. Hotel, in a bubble bath with a chocolate milkshake. Carolyn knows how to pamper herself. <laughs> and so she's in there. Meanwhile, Ron sneaks into her hotel in a plot element that John Hughes would reuse in Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. <laughs> Ron sneaks into her hotel room with a champagne cart. At that point, her kids call because they want to say hi to mom. Right. And he answers. And he's like trying to get them off the phone. He's like, what's happening? And then Jack picks up and figures out that Ron is in her room. Jack gets upset. Right. And so he basically freaks out, breaks the TV. Right. He puts a foot through the TV. (laughs) Which means the TV repair woman has to come again because he can't bring it to the store. That's another rom-com built in there where that could happen. Oh, yeah. Um, Someone keeps breaking their TV in order to see the TV repair woman. They're too shy to ask her out. So they have to keep breaking their TV in order to keep seeing her. Well, you're going to have too many ideas. I'm going to make sure that they're different movies. No, you do like a... Like a movie 43 thing where you do 46-minute movies. Yeah, because that works so well. That movie is People horrifying. People really love that movie. Don't watch that movie. <laughs> okay, so the next day, Joan comes over. Oh, well, by the way, still in the hotel room, oh, Ron right. tells Carolyn to oh, dump Jack right. and to marry him instead. And he says he won't, like, he won't take a no. She keeps saying no. So she hits him. Right. She decks him right in the face. Yeah. Back across the room. Actually says that she's adorable when she's angry and that she's just playing hard to get. So he it's, just does not take Oh, it. yeah. It's, it's gross. Really gross. So she punches him in the face and flies back the next morning because she's so mad. She quits. Yeah, she quits off screen. Yeah, we don't um, see that. So, but she flies back. But while she's probably like in the air, Joan comes over because Annette, who's sitting through this whole thing, clearly on the phone, loving yeah. the gossip with the phone call, obviously tells Annette. You see her. She tells Joan. Joan. So Annette tells Joan, you see her in the car. I'm not supposed to tell you this, so don't tell anyone. But so Joan rushes over to take advantage of the situation. And she pulls basically the same drink tray move while right. Jack is in the shower because he was like, all oh, gross. He's in the shower. She goes into the bedroom. With a tray and a bottle of Jack Daniels and some whiskey glasses. Right, because it's nine in the morning, time for scotch. Right. So uh, she's pulling the same move, which I kind of appreciate. Right. And then she calls into him, and that's when he realizes, like, oh, this is a weird situation. Yeah. So he's considering it. He spends, what do you think, like 30 minutes? The entire I, alphabet. Yeah, he yeah. makes it from point A to point Z. So probably, I think, like 30 minutes minimum. Right. Standing in the bathroom, debating whether or not to go out there and have sex with Joan. The whole time... All of the handy workers have showed up at the house again, Wait, too. they're all back. They're all back. The exterminator, the electrician, all that. And he does ultimately resolve not to do it. Right. He decides, I love my wife. I'm not going along with this. And he goes out to say, like, Joan, what the heck? Right. But Carolyn has now seen Joan lying on their bed with Jack Daniels and is 
you know, yeah. so, it's suspicious. No, Carolyn has thrown Joan out by this right. point. When he comes out, it's just Carolyn out there. Yeah, doesn't he say Joan, Jack, Carolyn? Yeah. Oh, yeah. second try. <laughs> so then they have it out, big fight. Joan's still in the house. And then they run downstairs, and guess who shows up? Ron. Ron. And Jeffrey Tambor also shows up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that Yeah, there's been a whole plot line about how Jeffrey Tambor was lying about putting all the blame for their company's problems onto Jack and his coworkers. Right. So Jeffrey Tambor is back. He's back to offer Jack his job. Ron is back to try to get Carolyn to come back to work. The handyman are doing their handyman thing, but they're all there too. <laughs> and they get very involved in the confrontation. Yeah, when... Ron is trying to rehire Carolyn. The exterminator is trying to help her negotiate a better arrangement. Yeah. And then I think the um, TV repair woman is doing the same thing for Jack. For Jack. Jack. Um, so in the middle of this, at some point, Jack and Carolyn eventually get a moment to themselves. They pawn the TV repair people onto Joan and Ron so that they can go talk to themselves, which I find so funny because then they have their moment. They make up. They realize that. He has his job back. Um, they'll be able to make things work because she is not happy at this company, clearly. And then they're sitting down the four, like them and their kids looking happy. But in the background, you still see the elect- the exterminator, the TV repair woman, uh, Joan and Ron talking in their house. And that's the final that's the shot. End of the movie. <laughs> that's what I really like. In. All right. But that's it. Yeah. they Everyone lives happily ever after. Yeah. And. To bring it back to that I Love Lucy, like it kind of resets in a similar way where people go back to their positions from the beginning. Like Jack literally goes back to the same job. But I think that unlike that I Love Lucy episode, which I love, the resolution of that episode is kind of like it's best if we all do our appropriate thing. Men should work. Women Women. should take care of the house because it doesn't work the other way around. Whereas I don't think this movie does that. I think this movie does establish that it can work the other way in this particular circumstance they're choosing not to. Right. Because Carolyn is great at her job and Jack eventually becomes great at being a stay-at-home dad. Yeah. And they have more understanding of each other's jobs. As a result. As a result of it. Which is nice too. Mm -hmm. So let's start with you all. What do you think? Is this a believable relationship? I think it's believable. Um, I think, you know, you just that they really work through their issues and that there are issues, but they work through it and they do it in a caring way. And I liked it. I think it's believable. Exactly what she said. (laughs) Yeah, I really do, too. Yeah, it's a believable, healthy relationship. And even the conflicts are believable. Right. And I have been known to put my child's rear end over the hand (laughs) hand dryer to dry them all. No, I haven't. That is a great scene. (laughs) So, here at Heart of Podness, we rank re- uh, these movies on a believability scale of 1 to 0. zero or, or you might say 0 to 10. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not reading off a script and mixing up the words. Um, so, 0 is totally... Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Or, as the script says, 0 is totally believable. That's what we said about Howard the Duck. 10 is 0. Totally believable. <laughs> so, 0 is totally unbelievable. 10 is completely believable. So far, our lowest ranked is Howard the Duck, and our highest ranked are Lady Bird and Call Me By Your Name. Where on this scale would you place this movie? I'd say seven or an eight. I would say an eight, I think. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I find this very plausible. Yeah. So we're putting it at the Iron Man score, I think? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. As believable as Iron Man. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, yeah. I'd go with that. 
I love putting these in context because it's just like we've reduced all of these completely different movies into the same scale. I'm going to put together a graphic for social media at some point that charts all of these. Oh, yeah. That I'm very excited for that. Yeah, day, that'll William. be a fun one. I also, one day I'll put together a master thing of all of our dating advice. Oh, yes. Because we've had such good advice. You should follow all of our advice. Except like 50% of Mark's is be yourself. Yeah, Mark's real fun. I think that was once. You've used it twice. Yeah, 50%. Do yeah. Check your math, you history teacher. <laughs> Two out of 18 is not 50%. There's still time. All right. Do you guys think Jack and Carolyn would be dateable? I think so. I think, you know, the sweetest thing I think about Jack is when he, the chainsaw part. I think it's hysterical, but I think it's also so sweet that he's trying to say, this is my woman kind of thing. <laughs> but do it in such a, he's trying to be impressive, but he's so ridiculous in, in the whole thing. I'm, of being someone who he is not, so. I I agree, and I my favorite scene with Jack is when he's in the bathroom contemplating sleeping with Joan, and at Z, he finally says, but you love your wife. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I thought that was a great scene. So it shows that they are sincere. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. They're both just really nice people, it people. seems. Mm-hmm. Both competent is what we learn. Like, yeah. given enough time, they both are very competent at whatever they do. I'm into it. Yeah. So if you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? It would not be Ron. No, definitely not Ron. <laughs> <laughs> not him at all. Not at all. I would say Jack. Yeah, I'd say Jack, too. He's, like, kind of the best choice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to choose the mean British secretary. Because she looks very, like, she's got great sunglasses. She stands apart from everyone else judging. So she just seems like a very interesting person to talk to. There's a part of me that wants to say Christopher Lloyd, despite the fact that he has, like, two lines and is just there being Christopher Lloyd. He's just, like, yelling and flailing around. Yeah. But I always get a kick out of that from Christopher Lloyd. (laughs) I'm just bummed that he and Martin Muller never on at the same time for a little clue reunion. Oh, yeah. A re Yeah, that works. (laughs) All right. So that probably about does it for this movie, right? Yeah, I'd say so. So next week, it's going to be another Will pick. Uh, It's one that I haven't seen, but I'm very much looking forward to it. We're going to be watching From Russia With Love, the second of the Sean Connery, James Bond movies. Yeah, I haven't seen this one either. I think the only Connery Bond I've seen is Goldfinger. I don't know that I've seen any of them. Really? No. Oh, I'm excited. You haven't seen that many James Bond being my son? Yeah, but we didn't have them on DVD. And uh, they're not on Netflix or anything. Oh, okay. For a while, they were all on Prime, but really? they aren't anymore. Which they is used a to also they used like TBS used to do that used to play them in a month. I remember watching those. Yeah, so I've seen all of the Daniel Craig ones, and then I've seen I don't remember what it was called the one with the volcano base. Maybe there's more than one. That's um, Diamonds Are Forever. Cool. So I've seen that one too. Who's the Bond in that one? Uh, Diamonds Are Forever, Sean Connery. Oh, there we go. Great. All right. So you can check out actually our whole schedule for March and April on Facebook and Twitter. And so you can find us at both places at Heart of Podness. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. And if you do write us a review, tell us your favorite movie score to have another movie reference. And you can always email us questions or movie suggestions at heartofpodness at gmail.com. We're starting to get some more in, which is good because one out of three movies we're doing is coming from you guys. Yeah. So make sure to keep them coming. But yeah. Isn't that losing your... Um... Uh, your um, memory or whatever for your Gmail account? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Gmails are free. I can just make more. 
So, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Having a scotch at nine in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the race thing. So, throw the race. Don't embarrass whoever you're dating. Oh, that's very nice. That's actually a good one. I'm going to say, be yourself. <laughs> now that's three out of eight. <laughs> you're <No>. fired. <laughs> oh, that's actually not the point of this one. Um, oh, what was it? Probably chainsaws. I don't know. Just like in general, the dating advice is chainsaws. However, you can use it. I am committed to this alternate rom-com that I've discovered. Put your foot through a TV. <laughs> fall in love with the TV repair woman. All right. Uh, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye. Saw a monster in the mirror when I woke up today. A monster in my mirror, but I did not run away. I did not shed a tear or hide beneath my bed. Though the monster looked at me, and this is what he said. He said, wubba, 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 woo, woo, woo. Wubba, 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 and a doodly-doo. He sang wubba, 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 so I sang it too. Do not wubba me or I will wubba you. Do not wubba me or I will wubba you. No, you didn't tell me to start yet. I thought we were doing silence. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't keep silence.